today with a topic which is probably something you have been hearing about for the last two or three decades as the most terrible thing that happens to women, that dowries are demanded uh, by some families, a very, admittedly a very small number of families, but they have resulted in a terrible outcomes such as burning the young bride with kerosene and a stove, uh, lighting a match, living, burning death. Nothing could be more painful and more despicable than what has been going on in the name of money, dowry, greed, etc. Now, this was very disturbing to me. I was in America as a professor and my, it came out on the front page of the New York Times and we were all startled because it, this was in 1984. Many of you may not have been born then. And I just was startled. I went to the faculty dining room at lunch and a flock of my colleagues said, what's going on, Veena? In your country, they're burning women to death. And I was, I was so startled, I had not heard of it. And I thought they're talking about sati. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's a ancient practice, it's for widows. They said, no, we saw this documentary. It was about a young bride and this, the whole thing was filmed. Her death, her 90% burns and then how she finally dies in the most painful way. I was stunned because I had not seen it, but it was not just being stunned. It, I was provoked. I was angry. I said, A, why don't I know anything about it? And B, why does this happen? Dowries are not supposed to be demanded. Uh, I know from my own family, my mother would say, Joe, whatever we can give and whatever we can happily give is what your dowry will be. No one dare make any demands. It's not, it's not our culture to do that. However, what has happened is that extortion, blackmail, and murder have all been redefined in the public discourse as dowry and dowry death. They don't use the word murder. They don't use the word blackmail and extortion. If you make a demand, that is extortion because it is not. Dowry was supposed to be voluntary. So anyway, having had this jolt to my complacency, I decided that my next research topic will be to really cover and write, perhaps, if I was good enough to do that, I mean, clever enough to do it, to reconstruct the meanings of dowry over time and how they have, what they have come to mean in contemporary India. So you go, of course, naturally first, I, first I covered the media, which they didn't know. In 1956, when the Hindu Marriage Act was uh, promulgated by parliament, dowries were not supposed to be taken or given. So there was already some problem with dowry that had enabled that act in 1956. Uh, 
1961, sorry, after the Marriage Act, 1961. Then we get a Dowry Act in 1984, which bans it again. So not only was there official ban on dowry, all the women's movements were doing anti-dowry demonstrations. There were protest marches, there was uh, posters all over, wherever the protest was, and there were street plays, which were Om Swaha, you know, the woman burning and so on. And this was the way to somehow restore normalcy to the Indian cultural scene. None of this was very effective, however, because even today we have dowry murder. Something had fundamentally changed from how it was construed in ancient times to the way it is now construed. And this was not just accident, this was not just misreading, this was a slow evolution building up very quickly in the 19th century. In the second half of the 19th century, this built into a real change in our social milieu, in our economic context, and in fact, in the entire backdrop of where how dowry was given and changed. So I went from contemporary uh, reports, I decided that as a historian, I should go to the archive and dig up something which might explain the change. Take the Dharmashastra, you know, written by Manu. He's normally seen as a very anti-feminist character because he wrote that, you know, a woman basically robbing her of any agency by saying a woman is looked after by her father when young, by her brother when, if the father dies, and then by her husband, and eventually by her sons. She seemed to have no agency. But I saw this when, after my research, that this wasn't about her. This was about how, who was managing the money. And so I became very curious to see why women who were given, you know, in the Dharmashastra, there are nine chapters. The last chapter, the ninth chapter, is called Stridhan. So if there is, and Stridhan was described by, in, in the Dharmashastra, as the sixfold property of women. The word property, of course, is English. The sixfold uh, dhan, or wealth, we should call it women's wealth rather than property, because I'm going to problematize the word property for you in a minute. So what was written there, which actually we again owe to the colonial powers, because the Dharma Shastra was one of many, 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 many Hindu texts. And it was never seen as the law of the land. But they had come out of a culture where they had one Bible, one God, one set of beliefs, that they, and they came and they found Muslims and Hindus, and they found that the Muslims had a decisive Quran, they had a decisive Sharia, they had a very decisive set of practices. Whereas the Hindu world seemed tangled in a variety of texts, in a variety of modes, in a variety of gods, in a variety of practices, which 
were baffling to them. It's not baffling to those who actually believe and, you know, if they are Shaivite or Vaishnavite or Durga believers or they're in the South, they have their own customs and rituals. So they wanted to tidy up this untidy world of Hindu society. So they picked the Dharma Shastra because it is very lucidly written. There are nine chapters, you know, it's almost like a textbook. And it suited their taste. It may not have been what was in social practice at the time, but they picked this book. You know, it's like picking a textbook and saying, this is what you have to know for your exam and nothing else. You may say there's a whole world of knowledge outside. No, this is what I will mark you on. And so you memorize that. This is basically how we acquired what we call Hindu law. And I think that not much mind has been paid, even in our current things, to actually sort this out and make women the centerpiece of Hindu law, not the sort of marginalized version that comes into being within Hindu law. Uh, fancy this. Hindu law is put in, the Dharma Shastra is put in, the Hindu code comes into being, in 1956, it becomes the law of the land, and there is the centerpiece is the HUF or the Hindu United Family. And guess who's not a part of it? Daughters. Can you imagine the same daughter will become the mother of the next HUF, but she is not counted. So such a law should have been promptly disbanded. I think it is one of the absolutely baffling omissions you know it's like saying well we have this baby and you say who gave it birth that is the father where's the mother oh the mother's very incidental she's just the vehicle you know her, her tubby becomes big and we pull it out mainly it's the father that's what it means and that tradition has to go it has been slowly going with Feminists fighting for their rights, for property rights, and trying to restore women to where they belong, which is in the center and as the agents of Hindu life. That's who women are and should be legally constructed back into that position. Now, I'll tell you my. Uh, History of dowry, I can only track it back. You know, there is the Dharma Shastra and then there's a big gap. It seems that not much changed during the period of various regimes. The major change, fundamental change, comes with the colonial powers because they are textual minded, they are uh, used to written laws. They want codes of law, you know, there's a penal code, there's an uh, act of evidence. Everything had to be documented and made formal. So now, the one, the one thing that, you see, we, we have to see that all these categories, I'm using the word colonialism, it's not an absolute. It changes. Do you know the colonialists, as you know, those of you who read Indian history, they came as traders. They came with nothing in their pockets. They came with woolen 
uh, Harris tweed and uh, certain clocks and funny things like that. And they wanted, what did they want? They wanted cotton cloth. They wanted jute. They wanted indigo. They wanted all the goods of our country, but they came with nothing. So slowly they understood that, and the Indians would not accept these funny goods in exchange for theirs. They demanded gold and silver. And the colonials were very lucky because just at that time, the conquest of South America had occurred. Vasco da Gama had been critical for both sides. And a lot of Peruvian gold, Brazilian silver, you know, all the Peruvian silver, all was taken by Spain and Portugal. And they, those were the two leading powers in, this, in the 15th in the 15th and 16th centuries to do that trade. Now, so colonialism is a dynamic category. By the time the British come, they don't have gold and silver to give. So they learn from the French who had brought in their soldiers, made alliances with Hindu and Muslim sultans and maharajas, and conquered their own lands. You know, this, you can't blame them because we were so willing to make these, you know, we became mercenaries in our own conquest. And this is a well-documented history. I'm just going to come to the major part. Now, conquest was expensive. It needed blood and treasure. You had to pay your soldiers. You had to, you know, many soldiers died. You had to replace them. So. Conquest was given up. The last conquered place in the subcontinent of India was the Punjab. It was conquered in 1849, 1849. In the last place to be annexed without a war, without soldiers being used, was Avadh in 1856. But that led to the great rebellion, the Ghadar of 1857, which cost them even more treasure and more lives lost, a lot of European lives lost because there were European soldiers involved. And that sobered them up. And they decided that instead of warfare, we will collect revenue, like the Mughals are doing, like the Sikhs are doing, like the Hindu Rajas are all over the place are doing, we will collect revenue. So when the Punjab was taken, one of the first orders of business in 1849 was, who owns the land? This was the question they asked. And how much revenue do you owe? When they asked who owns the land, it was total bewilderment on the part of the Punjabi farmers. Who owns the land? We control the land. Um, you see, we, we have shares in the land. Nobody is an owner, outright owner. We can't buy it or sell it like you people do. We don't do that. We have control over the land and everyone from the Mughal emperor, then Ranjit Singh, the Maharaja, then you come to 
uh, you know, the, uh, the village heads, everybody has a share, down to the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the potter, the sunhar, the, you know, all the, all the professions that keep life going. Everyone has a share in the produce of the land. Nobody owns the land. So how much revenue do you pay? Oh, that varies. It varies with the harvest. If there's a good harvest, they take 30%. If it's a medium harvest, they take 25%. Otherwise, they sometimes they will just do muafi, meaning they just forgive it. And they don't take it if there's a famine or if there's a drought, if there is a plague, if there is pestilence. We know what a plague does, how people are displaced and they lose their livelihood and they cannot pay their taxes. So the government has to rethink its tax policy. In that time, in pre-colonial times, taxes were rethought every year, twice a year in fact, because there were two major crops, uh, the Ravi and the Kharif crops, and each one was assessed and then the revenue was paid in chiefly in kind, you know, in grain or whatever the product was, whether it was sugarcane or cotton or whatever the commodity, indigo, jute. It was taken in physical terms. Monetization was very little. And so you had a very flexible system and actually a generous administration such as Ranjit Singh's in the Punjab would very generously say, no tax this year. We will live with less. And the Sikhs have always had a very, very generous attitude to, uh, to that kind of, you know, in, in times of need. Even today, their Gurdwaras re reflect that they will feed the poor, they will help the sick. And so uh, Ranjit Singh was the Maharaja at this time, and he is the one who was killed. And uh, 1914, he died, you know, he died. And then 39 and 10 years later, the missiles couldn't hang on, and the British won after two brutal, very bloody Sikh wars, which are in your history books. Okay, so what happens? The word, my argument rests on looking at the dynamic aspect of property, colonialism, and culture. This is the three-legged stool. Property is as dynamic. You'll see it's not a fixed idea of movable, immovable. It was going to become that. At this time, what is property? Well, it's a share in the land the product of the land. And if the product is low, your share will decline. If it's a bumper crop, you will have more because that's your share. And shares moved and shifted. If you left the village, like women had also a share in the crop. After all, they were eating and living. When they got married, they left their village. And this is where gender comes in. Gender was constructed differently even in ancient times. Men stayed on the land. They were needed for its defense because, you know, if you have a share, you have to control. You can't have your neighbors come and steal the crop so that they have to pay, you know, their dues 
you have to pay your dues. So, so men were ready to defend the land. And if you look at the Punjab geographically and historically, it was a war zone. Or the invaders invariably came from the passes in the Himalay, and that's where warfare occurred long before they came to Delhi, or you know, Delhi was sort of far away inland. Uh, but Punjab was on its north and western borders were created by the Punjab. Even Haryana was part of the Punjab till 1966. So now what happens is that the British who believed, uh, I should read you Swan Wallace's um, definition of property. Uh, Lord Cornwallis, who was the governor general during the British East India Company period, he said in 1990, you know, in 1990s, he created the permanent settlement in Bengal. His justification was that the legislature in England has invariably promoted the good ends of civil society. You know, that we, we make the best laws, the legislature makes laws. We promoted the good ends of the civil of civil society. How have we done that? By making sure that with the wise and orderly maxim of assigning to everything capable of ownership a legal and determinate owner. That we don't have this jumble of conflicting rights and reducing and increasing and so on. You can have all kinds of disputes. We will give India, we will modernize India into being a place of private property. And that is why when we talk about property rights being there in the past, it's a little bit peculiar because the word property in its current sense of being a commodity, you know, land is bought and sold. Land is cut up into plots by, you know, agricultural land can become, land use has changed and you can grow a colony of houses on it. So land has become a commodity and it has to have a determinate owner. And this ownership is formally given in the shape of a title. It's a piece of paper that absolutely and completely defines who owns this. And in the time of the British, it also said how much revenue was to be due on this land. They were interested, they're turning from, from traders into a state to collect. You see the whole company, the East India Company, becomes from a multi-trading corporation, uh, becomes now, is becoming a state. They're making their own coin. They were already doing war and peace, making treaties. So these are functions of state, not of a trading company. So they have actually become an informal state and they want and they give to the Punjab a completely new idea of ownership of land. Now I say it's dynamic because the British in Bengal put in the big zamindari system. You know, the zamindar, huge, they had three, four thousand, thirty thousand acres because they mistook 
the tax collector for the owner. So if he said, I have 90 villages under my control, they would say, you own it, here's your title, you will give us this much revenue. They're only interested in the revenue part, not in the fundamental revolution they are causing in the countryside by creating ownership. Now, if the riot, the peasant doesn't pay his dues, he's sick or his oxen has died or his mother is not well and he hasn't been able to work, he will lose his land because his title will be taken. We'll, we'll see how that happens. Okay. So now when they come to the Punjab, they don't find that zamindari system fits. They revert instead to the Rayatwari system, which they had already implemented in the presidency of Madras, as they called it. So now they say that the, the, the farmer, the tiller, the son of the soil, the, the tiller will get the right to property. So what, you, what they create is a whole swarm of people with small plots, three to four to five, five to 10 acres uh, of land, which they own. And on it is the fixed revenue. Now, revenue also changes. They, they do three things to revenue, which completely transform the way it had been formally collected. The British want a fixed amount of revenue on a fixed amount of land. And this fixity, they used to call it 30-year settlement, 15-year settlement. At least for that period of time, the revenue would not change. What was it based on? It was based on the average crop of the last four or five years. Now you know that no, no year is average. Sometimes the monsoon comes, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it causes a flood, sometimes there's a drought. Sometimes it's just very, very good. And sometimes it is very, very bad. So, but if your revenue is fixed, you've got to pay that, whether you have the money or not. The second fixity, there are three fixities. The second fixity was that you will pay it on a certain date. And they fixed two dates. For the rabi crop, it was the 30th of March. For the, uh, sorry, for the kharif, it was the 30th of March. For the rabi, it was the 30th of September. On those two dates, you, the peasant who owns that piece of paper, which has given him title to his land, he has to go to the tehsil office, meaning to the district office, which may be miles away, maybe three days away from his village, but he has to be there on that date with the fixed revenue to pay. And he no longer can pay it in grain or goods that he makes. He has to pay it in coin because they bring in monetization. The British said monetization. Bring coin and our coin, not your Ranjit Singh's coin or bring gold or silver. We'll make that into coin. But you have to pay in bullion or currency. Now, this is going to create havoc. And this is why dowry is going to become a problem. I'll show you. I'll demonstrate this to you. 
take a peasant, let's call him Ram Singh. Ram Singh has is owed, he's got a 10-acre plot, he owes his, he owes uh, his revenue. However, his oxen died and he wasn't able to till about six of his 10 acres. So he has enough to feed his family and enough, just about enough, to pay the revenue. But then comes a hailstorm and the standing crop is destroyed. Now he has nothing. And he has to reach the tehsil on the given date to pay the revenue. Otherwise, his land can be alienated. You see, it's a commodity. So it can be alienated from him. It can be auctioned. It can be sold. Either he has to find a buyer or, or he has to go to the money lender to immediately borrow money. And now the money, the money lenders have always existed. It wasn't a creation of the British. But the new style of money lending was very much a package with this new style of revenue. Why? Because the money lender used to give small loans. You know, at most, if they asked for a collateral, you gave a bangle or you gave a necklace. And you said, Bhai, give, me, give me a small loan. I need to, you know, um, do a mundan or I need to have medicine, you know, something, you know, some emergency. They never wanted loans to be to be paid, they did not want them to be repaid fully because they wanted to keep these clients. Most of the loans were unsecured. They were just by word of mouth and trust and the money lender was seen as the village friend. Everyone wanted to be in his good books because in times of need, he would come to their help. Now the money lender knows that the farmer has a title and it's attached, it's what his land is worth. So he says, you must take a bigger loan and I want your title as the collateral. We will secure the loan with the collateral. He says, I just want 20 rupees. He says, no, you're going to take 200 rupees and if you don't pay it within a certain date, your land is ours or we will auction it take what we, we have to take and um, give you the rest, but you will lose your land. So now what happens is, you know, if there's a good harvest, everybody has to pay on the same date. The harvest has come through and what happens is you have to take the grain to the market to sell it because you need the coin to pay your rent. So what happens? Prices of grain crash. Every time there's time to pay the revenue, your wheat is worth less than it would have been. And so you find that this, now where, where do you look? If, if the money lender is going to take away your land, you don't want to go to him. If the government is not your friend anymore, it's not going to do any remissions, you can't really appeal to the government. You have to look within your own resources, within what society can generate. You look at that. And that is where dowry plays a big part. The only disposable things, jewels, small jewels, little money, wealth, 
uh, household items. This is what made up the dowry. And these were fungible. You could sell these or you could give these as collateral. And if they were not enough, well, ask for a bigger dowry when your son's marriage comes. Ask for money. Ask for gold. Don't take anything else. Take gold. Take money. Currency was the name of the game. And so large sums of money were now expected. You know, you find that dowries suddenly, which were the domain of women, have come into the domain of the administration and the farmer who has to pay his revenue and the entire uh, balance in society has now tilted towards men because they now want control, they, want, they can make a demand and so on. What makes them able to make a demand is because there are also other changes in the economy. For example, Punjab also sees an enormous amount of prosperity at this time. Uh, they are recruiting hundreds of thousands of Punjabi men, particularly the Jats, particularly the Muslims, for their army. And the army has regular pay in coin, meaning money, a cash payment every month. And when you have given the army 10 years of loyal service and you didn't die in fighting and so on, you would get 27 acres of irrigated land. So that becomes, you know, a huge boost to the economy because so much cash is now in the hands of the farmers whose sons are going. This also increases the bias towards sons because if you have three sons, four sons, you could almost become rich from being a very poor farmer. The whole opportunity, the horizon of opportunity is dominated by male muscle. The strong men, the tall men, the Punjabis, the, you know, the Sikhs, the Jats, the Muslims, these are the most valued people. So you find that a lot of people also are finding profit in retail because now grain is being bought and sold. Prices of grain go up and down and money is to be made if you can store some grain and sell it at the time when there's a famine. The entire political economy has been revamped. We have become a market economy with land as a basic commodity. Now, if dowry doesn't change, what will? Dowry was the most flexible thing. It was voluntary. Now, a man with a son can say, look, my son has joined the army. You have to produce. I, I want so much in cash, so much in jewels, so much in buffaloes and cows because I want to grow my... You see, money is now fungible. You can make money into land, movable into Im immovable, immovable into movable. Because your land is sold and you just have a little money, you better run, 
you know, go become a migrant and work in the next state because this state is not going to help you. So you go to Abad because Abad has not been taken yet. In the first five years of the first fixed settlement, 40% of Punjab's lands change hands. Titles are lost. What is created is lack. Prosperity for those who have found the jobs and been able to um, find retail practice, able to lend money. But the rest, the farmer, the small riot who had been favored in their eyes, today is sitting at that time becomes landless because he was not able to pay over four years. There's bound to be one famine. I've looked at famine records. It is a recurring cycle of drought, flood, famine, plenty, etc. And so you find that in four years, in the space of four years, 40% of the land has changed hands. It's in the hands of bigger and bigger farmers. It's hand. So you get, what you're getting is a sort of a half-baked capitalism. The reason why I call it half-baked is that none of the money is invested in anything that is productive, like industry. For example, India was one of the biggest industries, uh, textile cottage industry was the largest in the world. All that goes because England has discovered the technology of making cotton, they have gone into mechanical technologies, they have created machines which can do it faster, quicker, even finer. And you find that Indian textiles go begging or there is poverty for those who are growing cotton. In this business of titles, two things have happened. A, I've told you the dowries are now demanded, but B, women are not on the patta or the title deed for the land. They are left out. For example, we see this today. We see the farmers' crisis. They are protesting. We hear about farmers' suicides. We only hear about the men' suicides. We do not hear about the women who are committing suicide. And believe me, there's an equal number of women who have committed suicide. But they're not called farmers because they don't own land. Their name is not on the patta to this day. So they're not farmers. You can, the definition of a farmer is someone who owns land. And if you're not going to give it to the women, then how on earth can they be farmers? And how on earth can their suicides be called farmers' suicides? So you see that it's, today we have echoes of these practices that were put in place and we have not done anything to change it. Women must, in a family, get absolutely equal rights to the property of that family. And when they go, as you have in, in, in England, in America, all these countries that we think are modern and what we should become one day, well, in New York, the law is the day you marry, husband and wife, equally own whatever they have brought to the marriage. Equal. If my husband is very rich and I'm a graduate student, well, then I own half his property. And so he will own 
anything I have, half. It's absolutely equal. You cannot reduce that quantum. Equality is underpins it. Our world remains hierarchical, whether it is caste, whether it is, you know, but the greatest hierarchy is the gender. Gender, where the male is favored to such an extent that we cannot, cannot have an equal society, a just society. Until we remedy this absolutely basic problem. Yes, we make laws. I know recently a law was passed where now girls will be counted part of the HUF. Ha ha, finally, oh, girls will be counted part of the family. I mean, think of it. Think of you people who think of our traditions and see how completely uh, hollow they ring when women are not even, you have to pass a law to make a woman a part of a family. Who creates the family? Leave the men alone. Let the women go on strike and there won't be a family. There won't be any children to call your own. And yet, this is where we are. And that is why we do not enforce our laws. We make them. We ban Lauri. We ban it twice. We ban Sati. We ban it twice. You know, once in 1789, and then in uh, again in uh, with the root cover case in 18 uh, in 1984. We keep banning. We are very good at banning. We are, you know, because it, all it takes is a piece of paper, and all these sleepy men in Parliament say yes, and ah, ban again. But who's enforcing that ban? The police are trained to see domestic violence, which is what murder is. When a woman is burned, it is not dowry death. It is outright murder. But they will not. They'll say, hey, this is their domestic affair. You know, we are not trained to do this. We are trained to take protesters off the streets. We are trained to uh, go and raid homes where we think some black money is or you know, not the real black money, but just small, the small people. And so we find that the whole system is so loaded against women that dowry, they call it a social evil. I say it was the only feminist institution in our patriarchal world, and even that has been banned, and we are not enforcing. Fathers will write their wills only for their sons. Or the HUF divides money among boys. They don't count sisters. She's sort of like this movable object. She's a movable commodity. So this is why I have... The book is, of course, a much more serious and detailed and documented account. And I wish that all of you would take a look at this and possibly get it if you're serious about a, social change, B, equality and equity for women, and C, building a society that is just. And I do believe that all the laws in this land should be uniform, and women in, of every creed and every culture and every caste, it's a very futile exercise in banning this and banning that. It gives these elected politicians a lot of, you know, they're very chuffed that they've done something, 
but they cannot, cannot change society unless they really understand the fundamentals of where they should begin change. And it begins with women. And it begins with the rights of women being so enshrined. Now I believe it's getting a bit better, but they must be enforced. They must be enforced and they should be enforced by the legal machinery. Do you know that you can go and do a case and maybe 10 years later you might get a hearing. Our legal system is clogged. Justices are not being appointed. The whole thing is stagnant. So you, I find that, you know, call dowry the culprit to weaponize it and say that this is, if we ban it, there will be no more bride burning, is completely uh, barking up the wrong tree. It's misunderstanding of the entire role that property plays in its current form. Fascinating uh, talk. So I, I think I have an answer to the question from uh, from the lecture you gave, but I, I will still ask. There is this now, this, as you mentioned, uh, this, um, uh, uh, this activism from feminists, and as a result of which we see a lot of uh, 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 effort on the legal side to provide equal property rights to women. Now, my question is that when you... Uh, speak to women, particularly in rural areas, as to whether they would like to exercise that option. The response that I have received from women is that, you know, that seems completely out of the world to them to even think of, you know, asking for their uh, share in the property. In fact, what I have, what I found through my FGDs is that most women have signed off uh, through an affidavit their share of the property at the time of their marriage. Now, some people have commented that if we can give women equal share and women forego their rights to uh, forego their, uh, uh, their, let's say, their do the dowry that they receive at the time of marriage, do you think that's a balance that we can strike in terms of uh, moving towards gender equity? Anthropologists call exogamy, where you go and, uh, sorry, you, you it's going into your husband's house and you live there and you become part of that and you're supposed to inherit through that. Now, I will say this, that if I was just to take a very impressionistic figure from all the people I know, something like 50% of the marriages that I know personally from lower class to the richest class they are unhappy marriages. Many have informally left their husbands, but they are, they are unable to really leave because they have nowhere to go. Their parents' house is sort of closed to them because already the brother and his wife and his kids have made it their own. They've done it through the right that the son has. So if a daughter wants to come back, and by the way, I am a daughter who broke a marriage and went back. Luckily, my father was very, very, you know, he not only wanted me back, he said, you will leave that house when I will bring my gun and make you a widow. 
this was the promise he gave me. He said, I'm coming to get you, but I'm coming with my gun and I will leave, you will leave that house a widow because I will shoot your husband. He was that angry. So, but not many fathers will ever do such a thing. They will say, please, dear daughter, put up with what you have. Um, so we, we've got to bring some rationality into our lives and into our laws and into the way we think of tradition. Tradition is not frozen. It changes and it did change. So why can't we make it now so that it is equal, it is pleasant, there are happier marriages, men don't have that authority to beat up a wife and the policeman just says, well, that has to change. And then women will say, I want my share, because they will have the confidence to demand their share. They now know that if they demand their share, they will be ostracized. Their brothers will not talk to them. Their bhabis will give them galis. Their bhatijas will hate them. Believe me, and you know it. So how can a woman say, all right, I give up everything, but I want my share. And you can't take a share when it is in another town, another village where you don't live anymore after you're married. How to do it? It's the most impossible thing. Can you demand that the household family house be sold and then take your share? That too, you, you know, I would balk. I would say, no, that's not very fair. Then how do you take a share? Do you abolish dowry then? Give her nothing. Not the property thing and a dowry thing. What then? So this is the conundrum. This is the dilemma that we are facing. And we have to change. It's not just that you make a new law or you ban some old practice. Is that's not going to work. We have to really educate from day one our children into the message and meaning of equality. Where a boy hits a girl and says, Are and when a boy gets sick and a girl gets sick, the boy is taken to the hospital. The girl that is where inequality is rooted deep, deep. You know, this is not just in your marital home that you get burned to death. In your natal home, you have female infanticide. I have written as much about female infanticide in this book as I have about dowry because female infanticide was also blamed on dowry. We have to give those dowries so people don't want daughters. Really? And how does a farmer carry on without a wife? Do you know that in farming, there are many processes. The tilling is done by the man. The sowing, the weeding, the cutting, the threshing, and the bagging is done by the woman. The, all the other processes are done by women. The farms in India would come to a standstill if you thought that women don't work. So how they don't deserve... A, why do they give it up? Because they have no confidence, they have not been reared with, with the idea of equality.
so you say you say that this conditions of colonialism resulted in dowry becoming what it is today uh, but for whatever reasons anecdotal evidence seems to indicate that uh, actually the the continuation of colonial laws combined with modern consumerism is probably what has really created problems because uh, you know if you look at uh, the british period you know people uh, british were looking to reform the natives a lot and they do not say they talk about so many evils in hindu society but this dowry seems to be rather conspicuous by its absence no, no, or is not maybe that's my you know uh, uh, reading maybe i haven't read enough to understand that but uh, do they also notice that circumstances have become worse as a result of their administration have they made any comparisons between the princely states versus british india i mean do we have that kind of information so this yes, is a quest for information yeah firstly when you say modern consumerism uh, modern consumerism was in fact introduced by colonialism because the in, entire market economy is uh, something that happens after colonialism comes to india for example uh, farmers were forced to sell their wheat at a low price you know just as the harvest so they could export they were exporting from the punjab 10 million pounds uh, you know the pound sterling 10 million pound sterling worth of wheat from the punjab when there was seven years of famine in the punjab 1.5 million punjabi men and women died because of those exports so consumerism is brought in a lot of goods which are which today we see as you know consumer goods big refrigerators motor cars those are in fact a part of modernity a part of you know which was brought in very strongly by colonial forces even you know even travel holidays leisure clothing trousseaus all this is part of that consumerism and i therefore do not separate it out from the colonial period because it begins then it begins then if you see i've looked at um dowry lists in lucknow before the colonial period and after because i'm also a historian of lucknow and i was surprised at how uh, the lists change in what is what is given what is asked and what is received and that that certainly so consumerism is definitely a part and parcel of the fundamental changes brought in uh, through colonial power if you look at the records on infanticide which i have been taken lead looked at 70 80 years of collations of the numbers of sex ratios and so on the only reason imputed to um, infanticide was dowry and that violence happened in the natal home in the home of your birth who did it not just the dai but your grandmother you know your own dadi your own uh, mother was complicit in the death of a newborn baby which was female that changed as you know into feticide as we got technology and you could uh, determine the sex before the birth you immediately switch 
from infanticide has more or less died out. But feticide, meaning the fetus, female fetuses are killed after the determina sex determination is made. And it has been banned, it has been abolished, but it's still going on. So um, there is a huge amount of literature on what the British thought of dowry. And I would say, in fact, I um, say that, you know, in my book, I claim uh, with evidence that it, female infanticide in those very primitive times without any technology, you had to bring a child to birth to know that there was family planning. And because land was owned by men, the jobs in the army, the jobs in the retail sector, the professional jobs were all for men, it becomes much more important. Son preference becomes a very, very deeper thing than it used to be because women now want more sons to, um, to give them that rise in life. That, you know, if you have three sons, one will become a doctor, one will join uh, the civil service, one will become a lawyer, one will buy more land because he will have the resources of the family to buy more land as it goes up in auction. So you find that the move towards son preference becomes very much more marked. So how do you plan your family? You really want, if you ask a woman in the 19th century, what is your ideal family? And this is not a hypothetical thing. It was asked. And they would say an ideal family is about three to four sons and one daughter. How do you achieve that ideal? You achieve it by saving your sons and murdering your daughters when they are infants. And then we move on, we become very sophisticated, we're not so barbaric anymore. We do feticide. A doctor will come and remove it surgically, quietly in the middle of the night and you know, no one will know because you don't declare your pregnancy. You get a quiet test after the trimester and it's a horrible process because I've seen what happens? Thank you for, uh, the, but the point that I wanted to clarify was whether the British actually found this as a, uh, you know, highlighted this as a problem with native society because they did that in the case of Sati very nicely. Uh, but, did this? Uh, oh yes, if you look at, in 1854, they had a huge sammelan in the Punjab where all 49 districts, the headmen were called, and they were asked to sign affidavits where they would not, you see, they were accused of improvidence, meaning they spend too much money, too much uh, banned baja, too many feasts, too much this, too much that. Trouble is, and I didn't go into this, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry that uh, I didn't. What they did when they collected the revenue, they also cancelled some of the common costs which were given. You know, when Ranjit Singh, Ra Maharaja Ranjit Singh collected revenue, he would tell the revenue collector to leave 10% for the chopal, which was lighting, uh, spraying water on the roads because they were kacha roads and, you know, they became dusty. And for the, for the weddings, the chopal or the guest house had to be cleaned and, you know, new lape of gober and all that stuff. And uh, diyas had to be lit and 
flowers had to be collected and this was given to the family of the bridegroom and the band baja dholki they didn't have these you know military bands playing uh, colonel boogie's march for the wedding they used to have a dholak and they used to do bhangra and all this the bhans used to get money for that but it was paid by the chop by the headman who had a special account from the revenue that he collected he kept that money for precisely this the british come they see it as flab they say you know this is all in providence this is reckless that's why there is poverty these people waste their money we will cut it and they completely cut it to zero now the burden shifts not just bigger dowries but all the costs of marriage have to be borne by the daughter's family this i have given in great length in my book if you trouble to read it you will see that it will answer that question in enormously documented detail my question is much more historical and factual i'm working on uh, land and how occupational changes are happening in bengal so uh, my question is that ma'am do you think that dowry system uh, used to exist in a different form uh, uh, before the colonialism and if if yes then what it is and how it used to work uh, and the other question is that how, how what is the role of caste in the whole dowry system because uh, if we see caste especially the lower caste and also the tribals the systems are a bit different and sometimes it's a bit liberal like santhals or the bheels uh, so how how it functions there or even in the lower caste as well okay. thank you the first is was there dowry before colonial of course there was if you you know in the ramayana sita gets a dowry from janak her father and takes it and it is abhushan and vastra uh, and uh, you know very nice cups and you know things to uh, household goods we had it but it was voluntary it was what you could afford to give and secondly it was communal like you have a daughter and i have a daughter now i invite you to my daughter's wedding you will come and give a gift it will immediately be noted someone in the family will be deputed to notice ke inhone kitna diya tha they gave a, a cup a silver cup acha wo kitne ka hoga now you have a daughter's wedding unke yahan zarur jana hai neonda you know we have to go and give and you will get at least that much back so when a daughter's wedding is announced all the whole community family friends village people the headman everyone is going to contribute when i got married my father used to be a very good golfer and he played you know in lucknow with some of these industrialists one owned uh, one we owned the cotton mill uh, his friend uh, owned um, atta mill and uh, the sates owned you know lots of land in the sugar mill so he went and played and he said he would come back and say do bori mein chini aa gayi hai do man chini to make the mithai for the wedding uh, 40 mons of wheat has been won from the atamis guy because he's bad player usko maine laga diya dao hai so everybody is involved it was not an individual like today you know you have to go and book a hotel and uh, spend 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 there everyone came together and the nyonda which was the money left by the maharaja to disburse these expenses that was used 
to light the lamps. You know how much you pay for lighting and decorations. The flowers would come. Everything was done and people enjoyed the wedding. Today, the bride, I have more people weep. The girls are weeping when they're leaving. There was dowry, but it changes. And dowry was not a demand. That's why I object in my book to calling it dowry anymore. It is called extortion. It is called blackmail. And it is called a motive for murder. It is not dowry. So we had dowry, but we don't have dowry anymore. That's how I put it to you. The second question that you asked was that were the other tribes and, you know, the Santas and the Bheels and so on. There, there were many, you know, someone pointed out that, you know, the matrilineal societies, they didn't even have this um, exogamy that you go out of your, you go away to the boy's uh, family, to the groom's family. So that's one. Um, there was bride price, meaning when you married, uh, and especially among the Jats of the Punjab, there was dowry among Kshatriyas and Brahmins, but the Jats, who were the real peasants of the sons of the soil, they had bride price. And that's why if I had got to infanticide, you would have seen in my chapter on infanticide, this is very highly discussed. Bride price was that the boy's side gave whatever, the, whatever they thought the boys needed. Again, voluntary, not a demand from the girl side. And I saw the lists of bride price uh, in the colonial period. Chata, you know, the British had brought brollies. <laughs> they have rain all the time. So they brought umbrellas, shoes, leather shoes were given in bride price. Uh, they brought hats. They brought watches, wristwatch. Uh, they brought... Um, Various, you know, uh, shaving, shaving kit, giving to the father of the bride. So these were very happy exchanges which occurred. And in fact, a jat farmer had to save money, save resources in order to get married. Because he could not exist without the existence of his wife. Because after all, he only tilled the land. All the rest of the work was done by his wife. Who is going to bear the children? She has to bring up the child. Who looks after the family? Who knits the clothes for the children? Who stitches? Who cleans? Who washes? The woman is so central that to say, oh, you know, I'm, this is causing so much trouble with the families that the women are going to get their property. It makes me laugh because they don't understand what a woman is doing and the role that she plays in the family. And for that, She's not even counted as part of the HUF. What kind of utter boulder dash is that? So that those customs were there. Bride price was there. The giving, you know, among the Santhas in Madhya Pradesh, a lot of the tribals brought spears. And I've, I've looked at what all was given in the Punjab, swords, shields, because that's what you need. You are always protecting your land, not just against invaders, but against your neighbors. Because now it's your plot and you need to keep the harvest safe. So a lot of armaments, you know, shields and swords and krapans and all this was given. And of course, bedding. 
people didn't have beds they used to unroll you know sleep on the floor british bring in beds chairs yeah the whole the standard of living goes up much more expensive so those things are then demanded ke bhai we need two beds my son also needs a bed so if you don't give us please don't give us shields we'll take some beds instead char pai le lenge ye le lenge mooda le lenge you know so these things were sometimes negotiated this idea that give me a motor car or you have to your daughter is the modern modern men in a hurry who want prestige without working for it who want goods without lifting a finger this is a modern mentality which is really very ruined and i think that uh, you, you have to you know really educate boys from age 2 to not develop this mentality our schools are lacking in gender education we do not give them any idea when you have to insult a man you say usko choodi pehna do girl was saying oh i love to buy my bangles you know the the whole language of insult is why because women are treated those are the clues to our mentality about women and i don't like to use such words but they exist they exist there they exist here you know very well the hindi words for those names and i won't take them but punjabi is absolutely full of abuse set the cost of women and so we we have to look at the larger picture you know think of the bigger picture how does that fit into gender the equations of gender the equations of hierarchy in a society and what can make it happy